Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. This is an interview with someone who I admire very much. Charles L. Granada, known to his friends and pretty much everybody as Chuck Granada, he's a producer, music historian, and an author. He's mostly known as an expert on Frank Sinatra. He also has a great deal of knowledge on sound and the recording process. I understand he's writing a book about the composer and arranger Johnny Mandel. Johnny Mandel was one of the interviews a few episodes back. I suggest you check it out. The book definitely has my curiosity. This conversation was recorded back in 2015 which was the Frank Sinatra Centennial. I was doing lots and lots of interviews that were somehow related to Frank Sinatra. Of course, I continue to do that, but especially in 2015. In this interview, Mr. Granada talks about his life as a Sinatra historian and being the producer-engineer of the radio show, Nancy for Frank, on Sirius XM Radio. Charles Granada is somewhat of a hero to me. I admire the way he deals with people. I admire his passion for this music. And I think he's just a super guy. Enjoy, folks, and let me know what you think. Charles L. Granada is the author of three books, including Sessions with Sinatra, Frank Sinatra and the Art of Recording. He's the producer and engineer of the weekly radio program hosted by Nancy Sinatra, Nancy for Frank, on Sirius XM Radio. Author, producer, and historian... Charles El Granada, or Chuck as he sometimes calls himself, is our special guest, and it is a great pleasure to welcome him here. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Paul. This is a wonderful show, and I appreciate your asking me to appear today. It's an honor. This is a very special year for those of us that love Frank Sinatra, the centenary. It sure is. Yeah, his 100th birthday. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. Have you been busier than ever? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) It's been a wonderful year, but a very hectic year. As you know, the Grammy Museum exhibit, Frank Sinatra, an American icon, has been in New York City at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. And that has been a, a magnet for all things Sinatra that have happened on the East Coast over the past six or seven months. And I've been privileged and honored to have been a part of a number of events that have happened there with the Sinatra family and with the library. So yeah, that's that's kept us pretty busy. And I'm working on a few books. As you know, I'm writing a book, a memoir, with Johnny Mandel, the wonderful composer, arranger, songwriter, producer, who has worked with everyone, including Frank Sinatra. And I'm working on a Sinatra listening guide that will come out in 2016, hopefully. So I have a full plate, and yeah, it's been it's been a great year, though, because Frank Sinatra is everywhere. He's on television, he's in the movies, he's on the radio, as you know, and I know, and he's also on many people's minds because of his 100th birthday. So it's, it's a great year. Most stories are best from the beginning. What was life like growing up for you? Fairly quiet and normal, I would say. I guess normal is relative. I was born in northwest New Jersey in a small suburb called Bloomfield. And I loved music and records from a very young age. And I 
like to say that I was probably one of the strangest children people knew because when I was two years old, I was asking for a phonograph for my birthday. And by the time I was five and six, I was knocking on neighbors' doors and asking if they had any old records that they wanted to get rid of. So I was kind of like this odd little kid who loved music and loved records and tape recorders and phonographs and things like that. And that just continued right through my high school years. Of course, as I got into junior high and high school, I became more of an audiophile and became very interested in sound recording. And that, of course, led me eventually to be able to function as a producer and someone who went back into the studio and, and did restoration and mastering of some of these great historic recordings. But that was really it. I played the drums and piano when I was younger and a lot of records to really love all kinds of music from the time I was very young, international music. My mom was a Spanish teacher, so I was exposed to a lot of Latin music very early in my life. I still adore Latin music. I love classical music. I listen to a lot of jazz instrumentals and, and a wide variety of jazz vocals. But at the same time, I'm steeped in the music of my generation, which is classic rock and uh, contemporary rock from the 70s and 80s. So I really pride myself on my diversity in terms of my musical taste and enjoyment because I find benefit and beauty in all kinds of music. You're absolutely fascinated with sound, it seems. Yes, that's true. One of the things that I used to do that probably drove my parents crazy when I was young is I would ride my bike around the neighborhood and look for those houses where they did big house cleanings and they would put out a lot of different non-garbage, you know, non-refuse things. And I'd come home with old suitcases and old portable phonographs and tape recorders and cameras and film projectors. And, you know, all this stuff would kind of make its way into my bedroom where I would experiment with it. And, you know, as I got older, those little uh, crazy experimentations with other people's junk really helped me because I learned not just, you know, the mechanics of sound, but how these different instruments work. And I think all that was my background that kind of helped me when it came time to step into the role of functioning as a producer, sitting in the recording studio, auditioning recordings, determining what needs to be done technically to make them sound the best that they can sound given their source, working on cleaning them up a little bit, making them sound better than they do on the original discs and so forth. So, you know, I think everything in, I think everything you do in life has a purpose, even if it's selling newspapers as I did, delivering newspapers as I did when I was a child, running around and collecting all these different records at you know, local garage sales and picking tape recorders out of the garbage. I mean, it all kind of led up to what I do today, and it was all beneficial and valuable to me. So those experiences are ones and those memories are ones that I treasure. With the diversity of stuff, you, I mean, you just listed a lot of things that you like to listen to. Would you say, though, that Frank Sinatra is your favorite recording artist? Yes, I would definitely say that Frank Sinatra is my favorite recording artist. And that's hard to say because I'm personal friends with a lot of other recording artists. And it's not that I don't respect and value and love their work any less than I do Frank Sinatra's. It's just that Frank Sinatra was really the first voice that attracted me when I was very young. 
My mom had a nice collection of his Columbia era recordings. And I remember being about four or five years old and I used to play with her records and I put on an album from Columbia called the Frank Sinatra story in music, which was a compilation. And I just remember hearing this really amazing sound in birth of the blues. And it was to a five-year-old, it was a little dark and scary, but at the same time, it was very exciting. And I really enjoyed it. And I started listening to those old Columbia records that my mom had. And they, they were, you know, I wasn't listening so intently that I could say to you that I understood or remembered the lyrics, but I did remember the covers and the photos. And I remembered Birth of the Blues and Deep Night. And as I grew a little bit older and started to explore the musical world around me, I discovered all of the Capitol recordings with Nelson Riddle. And by that point, I was playing the drums, taking drum lessons and playing the drums. And I remember bringing some of those records into my drum teacher and sitting and playing them along with the record in the drum studio. So once I discovered Frank Sinatra and Nelson Riddle and that incredibly smooth and at the same time vibrant sound of the Capitol recordings, I was hooked. So that really is the first person who I could say I was completely attracted to and who I started to really explore in depth by going out and looking for these recordings from my childhood and trying to assemble a complete collection of Victor and Columbia and Capitol and Reprise albums, which, by the way, in the pre-eBay days and pre-internet days, was a real task. You had to really go out and send want lists around to different record stores across the country. When I was old enough to drive, I started traveling to Buffalo and Boston and Toronto and Pittsburgh to find rare 78 that had never come out on LPs. And little by little, I would say over a period of 20 years, I built what would be considered a world-class collection of Sinatra recordings. How many recordings do you think you have in this collection of Sinatra? I'm in the process, actually, of archiving it. My Sinatra collection is wide-ranging in that I have all mediums of recording, including about 400 to 500 radio transcription discs, which were the glass and aluminum lacquer discs that were cut during the radio rehearsals and the air shows in the 1940s and early 1950s. And I've spent a lot of my time over the last 30 years hunting them down and, and, and culling them so that we could, we could do something with them, which we are, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little while. I also have all of the Sinatra EPs from all of the labels, all of the 10-inch LPs, all of the 12-inch LPs, a lot of the foreign audiophile pressings, and then I also have, obviously, all the CDs. I have session material. I have the whole Columbia archive, all the alternate takes, because I'm the producer, one of the producers of all of the Columbia recordings. So it's a pretty massive collection, and it, it, it exists on all formats. It's on open real tape. It's on vinyl. It's on shellac. All of the 78s from each of the labels, Victor, Columbia, and Capital that he recorded at. It's on CD. It's on digital audio tape. For some of the projects that I've worked on, we have uh, mag film transfers to um, studio digital formats. So it's really a wide-ranging collection. It's really a resource collection. I like to call my entire, my overall collection of music, which is approximately 12,000 CDs, 
10,000 LPs and other vinyl or shellac records and hundreds of tapes. I like to call it a reference collection. Hmm, fascinating. That's just a huge library of music. I was hoping you could tell us, what, what are your thoughts on the Frank Sinatra album, the very first LP, the voice of Frank Sinatra? What are your thoughts on that album? I love the 1946 album, The Voice of Frank Sinatra, which was originally issued on the first album sets that albums were named after. In the, in the mid-40s, the record labels used to put out these box sets, fold-open box sets, containing 478 RPM records, shellac records. And the reason they started calling albums albums was because these 78 sets looked like old photo albums. If you opened up the cover, which usually had a nice color photo, there were pockets and sleeves for these 78 RPM records. The voice of Frank Sinatra was truly Frank Sinatra's very first concept record. I know that a lot of times we look to In the Wee Small Hours as the first Sinatra concept record that was recorded almost a decade later, and that truly was his first 12-inch full-length LP. That's absolutely correct. But prior to that, he had done the voice of Frank Sinatra, and he went into the studio with Axel Stordahl, who was his music director and primary arranger in the 40s. They recorded eight songs with a very similar tempo and feel. There was a small chamber orchestra. They had this very intimate atmosphere to them. And all of the songs and the arrangements and the performances had this similar theme that ran through them. And that really is why we look to the voice of Frank Sinatra as the very first concept album. It was the first time that Frank went into the studio and conscientiously said, I'm going to create a collection of mood music with a theme. And that was love, which is the common theme of almost every Sinatra album. Our special guest today is Charles El Granada, one of the foremost experts on Frank Sinatra and also author of the book, Sessions with Sinatra, Frank Sinatra and the Art of Recording. In the beginning of that book, there's an interesting exchange between Sinatra and the songwriter Sammy Kahn, where Sinatra says, I'm going to be the world's greatest singer. How important do you think confidence was to Frank Sinatra's success? Oh, it was vital. It was essential. And I think it's the reason that he was successful, and successful as quickly as it happened. Frank had incredible confidence in his own abilities. He knew before anyone else what he wanted to do and how he was going to do it. And it really is amazing when you think about the music industry at that moment. There were a lot of band singers. There were a lot of people who were recording and, and were being heard on the radio and on jukeboxes, and even some of them in film. Frank loved Bing Crosby, and I think Bing really was his primary idol. He wanted to be Bing Crosby. And I don't mean that he wanted to sing like Bing, but Frank wanted to be a singer. He wanted to be able to stand on a stage and sing to people as in a concert setting. He wanted to be able to sing on the radio. He wanted to be able to sing in films, and he ultimately achieved that. And I think if he didn't have that confidence and he didn't know that he could do what Bing was doing, I don't think he would have ever taken that step. I don't think he would have ever 
been able to go to a Harry James band and cut his teeth or to Tommy Dorsey and develop and learn as quickly as he did. The confidence really is what inspired him to reach the goals that he had set for himself in his mind. And he did it very quickly. I was just talking to someone over the weekend. And if you listen to the live recordings that he did that were lucky were captured on disc in, in 1939 with Harry James. He's got the voice, and you can hear how it's starting to come together, but there's still some tentativeness. He's not completely confident yet. But if you fast forward less than a year to 1940, he starts with Tommy Dorsey, and by his third session, he records a song, a Frank Lesser song called Say It, over and over again. And I use this song in my book as an example of perfect vocalization and also Sinatra's borrowing the influence from the way Tommy Dorsey played trombone. And if you listen to say it, listen very carefully to the way Dorsey phrases the melody on the trombone, and then listen to the way that Frank Sinatra vocalizes the lyric line. And you could literally superimpose them to my thinking in my ear, and it would be the same. So we have this real change very early in the Sinatra Dorsey game where Frank is trying to imitate the instrumental style of Tommy Dorsey. It almost sounds like Tommy Dorsey is trying to play his instrument as a voice, as a, as a you know, as, as, a, as a, just like a voice. I mean, he was trying to do what Frank was doing vocally and vice versa. And that's something that Frank acknowledged that he liked to do and wanted to do very early on. And a lot of musicians have told me the same thing, that they spent years after they first started working with Frank Sinatra trying to emulate instrumentally what he was doing vocally. And I think that's the greatest compliment for a singer. This is probably a question that drives you crazy, I'm guessing. With such a vast discography, I mean, Frank Sinatra, so many albums. Which recording of Frank Sinatra... From a technical standpoint, given that you've listened to them so carefully, which one are you the most in awe of? That is a great question, and it is a complex question, but I do have an answer. There are two ballad albums that he did, both with Gordon Jenkins, both at Capitol Records. The first he recorded in 1957, and the title is Where Are You? And the second he recorded in 1959, and the title is No One Cares. And once I heard the original tapes as they were transferred with no processing and no manipulation by a wonderful engineer named Rob Laverde at Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs in Los Angeles, I was completely convinced that the sound on these two albums is probably the best sound I've ever heard in my life on a record. And that's saying a lot considering they were recorded in 1957 and 1959 respectively. But what they were able to achieve at the Capitol Studio in Hollywood, this is the Capitol Tower at Hollywood and Vine, with analog tape and ribbon and condenser microphones and thoughtful and purposeful arrangement of the instrumentalists in the studio and the microphones amongst those individuals is nothing short of breathtaking. It really is amazing. There's a richness and a depth and this 
sonic brilliance and coloration that's so natural and so perfect that I couldn't imagine it being any better. I get the feeling when I listen to those two albums in their best incarnation, which is the Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs, SACD, and LPs that came out in 2013. I get the sense that I'm standing right there next to the upright acoustic bass player. And I'm standing there next to the string section. And I have been in recording studios. I have been in Capitol Studio A at live sessions. And there's nothing like standing amongst the musicians and not just hearing the music, but feeling it as well. You get a, a vibration that just comes through the floor and just resonates throughout the room. And I can't describe it other than to say that, that it's a vibe. There's a vibe in the room and there's a vibe to the sound. And that is what I feel when I listen to Where Are You and No One Cares. This may also be kind of a tricky question. The anomalies. Which recording of Sinatra's is the most different, the most unique? That's a great question, too. I have to think about this one for a moment. When you say different and unique, in what respect? If you were listening to tons and tons of Sinatra music, the one that is just atypical, I guess, in that it would stand out to you. So from a musical and performance perspective. Yeah. I think there are two Sinatra recordings that are extremely unique and appealing for very different reasons. The first is his album, Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Chobin which was recorded in 1967. And it's the first time that we really hear Frank singing in that real Latin context, in the bossa nova, Brazilian jazz kind of milieu. And he was perfect at doing that. There's nothing more intimate than listening to that first Sinatra Jobim album because it's soft. Sinatra sings almost Soto Voce, where his, his voice is very, 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 very soft and, and warm and tender. And of course, you have that sexy, appealing sound of the guitars and, and Klaus Ogerman's brilliant string pad in the background. It's just amazing. So that was a very different context for Sinatra to recording. Even though that album is only 30 minutes long, we want to hear 10 times more music because it's so, so fresh and so rich and so appealing to us. It's got a very sensual vibe to it. On the other side of the spectrum is an album that Frank recorded in 1969, and it was at a moment when he was trying to appeal to a more contemporary audience. And I believe that this was yet another new concept that Sinatra developed, because this album was originally conceived to become a television program where the story could be told visually with the music that was recorded for the album. And that album is called Watertown. And it was written by Jay Combs and Bob Gaudio and arranged by Charlie Colello, who is a, a brilliant arranger that worked all of these guys. Bob Gaudio and, and Charlie Colello worked very closely with Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. And they wrote this album for Sinatra that really tells of a love story in a desolate New York State town, a little town 
that has a railroad that goes through, and it, it's the story of a couple and their breakup, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant from concept to orchestration to recording, and it's one that no one really knows about. I mean, real Sinatra fans have known about this album for years, but it's also one of Nancy Sinatra's personal favorites. It's also the, the favorite of her daughter, Amanda Erlinger, and it has become one of my favorites. I never really listened to this album with the, with the kind of perspective that I do now before Nancy and I started doing her show. And she's really taught me a lot about the value of this record. I think that's probably the most unique Sinatra performance that we can look at because almost everything else, even though he did a lot of unusual collaborating with Count Basie, with Duke Ellington, it's still with an orchestra. It's usually with a standard song. This is a real departure. And he took a risk. And the album was not critically acclaimed, yet it's brilliant. It's brilliant from every perspective. So I think it's worth a listen. And, and my understanding is that they're exploring the idea of doing some sort of television presentation of Wharton, where it's acted out the drama and it's enhanced by this wonderful music that Frank and Charlie Colello and Bob Gordio and Jake Holmes created. Well, you just mentioned Nancy Sinatra there. How did you meet Nancy Sinatra? I met Nancy Sinatra in, I believe it was 1994. I had worked on Sony Music's 12-CD box set, uh, Frank Sinatra, The Columbia Years, The Complete Recordings. The Columbia Years were Nancy's favorite recordings of her dad's. Those were the songs he recorded between 1943 and 1952. And I had worked on the box set and began working on some other Sinatra projects at Sony at Legacy Recordings, which was the steward of the Columbia label recordings. And I was home one day in Clifton, New Jersey, and the phone rang, and I picked it up. And this very sweet voice on the other end said, can I speak to Chuck, please? And I said, this is Chuck. And she said, Hi, Chuck, it's Nancy Sinatra. And I was really blown away. And she said, I love the work that you're doing on the Columbia recordings. And I know that, you know, you've made a lot of great inroads in exploring my dad's career. And I'd like to sit down and have lunch. I'm working on a book and I'd like you to help me with it. And we had lunch the next week at the Friars Club in New York. And that was it. We became fast friends. I worked on her books that she did. I worked on her own albums that she did. They did some reissues, Sunday's Music in uh, New York State, did some reissues of her Nancy albums from Reprise, and I worked on the liner notes for her for those. And we became good friends, and when it came time, we stayed friends for all those years. When it came time for Sirius to develop programming for the Seriously Sinatra channel, they asked Nancy to do a radio show, to host a radio show, and she, in turn, asked me to produce it and sometimes co-host it with her. So we've had a long, productive friendship for many years, 21 years and counting. So it's, it's really a delight for me. What is the experience like for you working on that program, Nancy for Frank? Well, as you can imagine, for someone who loved Frank Sinatra as a young child and then really developed an affinity and, and collected his music, for decades, it, it was almost unbelievable when I met Nancy and, you know, we became friends and collaborated on some things together. I treasure that friendship 
above most things in my life. When she asked me to do the radio show with her, I was really blown away because that implied that she truly trusted me. She was going to put herself out there and do this three-hour show, which is an ambitious program. It's tough to do a three-hour show once a week and make it cohesive. By the way, we just finished our 301st program last week. So we've been on the air for over seven years. We've done 301 shows and, you know, a dozen or so specials, and we're still at it. So I took that very seriously. I was honored, and I took it seriously. And honestly, from one perspective, I still have to pinch myself sometimes and say, oh, my gosh, like, I'm really getting to do this? This is amazing. I would never have ever thought this as a little kid playing Birth of the Blues or sitting in the drum studio playing to Frank and Nelson, that I would meet and befriend all of these musicians that play on those records and the songwriters and the producers and the engineers and the arrangers, but then on top of that, befriend his family. So on the other hand, Nancy makes it so easy because number one, she is one of the most musically astute people I have ever known in my life. She took piano lessons and was classically trained as a child. She played a lot of the classics on piano. We know that she became a very successful, wonderful celebrity singer in her own right in the 60s and continued through the 70s and 80s. And then she's got this very unique and insightful perspective on her dad. And all of that combined bring something to this show that I don't think any other program could duplicate because everything that we play is truly Nancy's choice. If she does not want to play a song, we don't play it. If she doesn't like it, we don't play it. So what, what I think is really cool is that Nancy programs the show. She'll send me a list of maybe a hundred songs and she'll have a theme in mind. And what I'll do is I'll, look at the list, and she usually has it paired into sets. Once in a while, I'll look at a set and say, oh, we could add this other song here. It would be great. And, oh, yeah, there's this Sinatra gem from Columbia that we don't play often. We can insert it here. I do very little tweaking of her song list because they're perfect. She does such a great job at selecting songs and putting them together. And, by the way, I can tell you, I can, I, I can provide proof if I were forced to, she does all of this herself, and she takes a tremendous amount of time doing it. She truly agonizes over the playlist each week. She listens to things. She matches them up, makes sure that the transitions will sound good to the listener, make sure that each song kind of melds properly in terms of feel and, and performance. She spends a lot of time crafting these shows. And I like to say that our show is truly handcrafted. Once she does that list and we have our set list done, we usually play between 55 and 58 songs on any given show. I will then mix the music and she and I will record some dialogue to kind of do the transitions and, and so forth. And then I'll put it all together and it becomes Nancy for Frank. And to me, I still can't believe that I have this dream job of being able to work with someone who I love as a friend and admire so much and respect so much as a performer, Nancy. On keeping your dad's music alive. I mean, to me, it's just, who, who wouldn't be really happy doing that? It's like she's a perfectionist like her dad, it sounds like you're saying. Very much so. The really neat thing is that each week, wherever she is, Nancy listens to the show. If she's in Los Angeles, Sunday afternoons are spent at her mom's house, where 
she gathers with her children sometimes and her granddaughter and her mom, and they listen to the show together. I've been there many times in Los Angeles. And, and when I'm in L.A., I usually have dinner on Sunday at Mrs. Sinatra's house with Nancy Sr. and Nancy Jr. and the kids and grandkids. And we listen to the show. And, and a lot of times I will get that phone call during the show or I'll get a text message or an email and it'll say, I think blank, blank, blank. And it might be, I think we need to change that song to something else. It might be, I don't like the way that bumper sounds. And she'll say, and I'll do right back immediately. No problem. I'll correct it for the re-airings on Tuesday and Thursday. So she listens back and she knows when something's right. And that's what I love. And it certainly is my pleasure to be able to say to her, hey, I'll change it. I'll change it. We'll fix it. We'll make it. And making it perfect is, is, is my job as her producer and her friend. It's, it's keeping it at the level of quality that Sinatra, both Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra, expect and deserve. I'm very curious about this since you mentioned her. Tell us about Nancy Sinatra Sr. What is she like? Nancy Sinatra Sr. is simply one of the most elegant, classy people that I have ever met in my life. And when you look at the way her children have grown up, they're fine human beings who give of themselves generously. They've never gotten in any trouble. There's never been any scandal or crazy stories about the Sinatra kids. And they're all talented. Tina is a producer in Hollywood. Nancy and Frankie sing. When you look to their behavior and the types of people who they are, it comes back to Mama because Mama was their anchor. And she is a, an amazing lady. She's 98 years young, and she is sharp as a tack. And she is so thoughtful that I might be in L.A. in January, and we might talk about something. Maybe it's something having to do with herbal medicine or vitamin supplements. And a month later, I'll get a handwritten note in an envelope with an article that she found in a magazine. And it'll say, we were talking about this when you were here. I thought you might like it. Love, Nancy. And I'm like amazed. She's 98 years old. And there are very few people who are half her age that would take the time and be so thoughtful. But the fact that she's 98 years old and she remembered that we talked about it and she remembered that it was me and she thought it would be something that I would like and took the time and effort to literally hand package it and send it to me is amazing to me. And that's the kind of person she is. She is just one classy lady. I could say it no, no better than that. She is classy, elegant, beautiful, caring, kind, thoughtful, generous, all of the above. She's just an amazing human being. There's this album, On the Road to Romance, by the singer and also actor Robert Davi. And you wrote the liner notes for this album. Yes, I did. What did you think when you were first exposed to the music, the singing of Robert Davi. Well, you know, most of your listeners will know Robert Davi in a very different capacity than they hear on this album, on his first Sinatra album. And, of course, in, in the movies, Robert often plays a thug, a heavy, a very dark and mean-spirited character because he is a character actor. Uh, of sorts. I mean, he's a, he's a fine leading actor, but he's also, you know, does a lot of these roles where they're calling for a specific look and feel. And he plays that brilliantly. But on the other side of it, he's a very sentimental, 
warm-hearted, generous, kind person, truly a gentle person, which kind of is in contrast to his look, the look that he portrays on screen. But he's also got this wonderful talent in that he can sing. And when he was younger, Robert took classical singing lessons, and he really trained with an opera coach. He, He sang opera. And then he kind of abandoned that when he got his first part in a, in a film, which was the 1977 Frank Sinatra movie, Contract on Cherry Street. Here's Robert Davi, who grew up revering Frank Sinatra, singing Italian opera and studying classical music because he wanted to be a singer. He gets his first acting role in a major film because of Frank Sinatra, and they become friendly. And I think that story, that backstory is just an amazing foundation for what Robert has done. Robert has successfully created a wonderful offshoot of his acting career. And he's created a niche where no one does what he does. There's no actor that sings the way he does. And I know that Kevin Spacey sings and does concerts a la Bobby Darren, but it's very different. Robert Davi understands the emotion behind this music. He expresses it so beautifully because that's part of his craft. He's a talent who knows how to convey emotion, both visually and orally. So his singing voice is wonderful. I think, he, you know, it's got a charm and a character to it that's unlike any other voice. And he's really, really honed it. I mean, you know, he's continued to take vocal lessons. He has learned so many songs in the American Songbook and integrated them into his stage performance is that if you close your eyes, you're really transported back to another era. And I think Robert has done a tremendous job of keeping this music alive for a new generation of listeners. I was fortunate to join Robert at a concert in Long Island about two weeks ago. He did an outdoor performance at a beautiful park. I think it's called Washington Park in East Meadow, Long Island. And there were over 10,000 people at that show. That's an amazing number of people to draw. I'm sure a lot of them came originally because they know Robert Davi from television and film. But I know that a lot of people there were really excited when they heard Robert sing because they were, they were standing, they were cheering, they were yelling, they were happy. And that's what this is about. That's what this music is meant to do, make people happy and entertain them. It was a great show. I mean, Robert just knocked him dead. He puts on such a terrific show. And the thing about Robert, the thing I love about Robert Davi is that everything he does comes straight from his heart and soul. He loves this music, just like he loves breathing. He, like so many others, eats, sleeps, and drinks this music. He's fully immersed in it. I think in in a lot of ways, he probably enjoys making music more than he enjoys acting. But his love and passion and dedication are just so inspiring. And his talent is so wonderful. And I think he's done a lot to really help further and make deeper inroads in, in bringing this music to people who may not have otherwise listened to it. That's a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. And I think there are only a few people who do that credibly today. We don't have Frank Sinatra anymore. We have Frank Sinatra Jr. We have Michael Feinstein, who is a superb performer. Even though his style is different than Sinatra's, there's no one that's more steeped in the American songbook today than Michael Feinstein. And you have 
great celebrities like Robert Davi. And then there's a handful of younger guys and girls that are doing it. But you're really talking the cream of the crop right there. I think I think Robert really really has done a, an amazing job of using his talent to keep this music alive. Our special guest is Charles Granada. What are you working on right now? What I'm working on right now is a really exciting project. It's a four CD set that I'm doing at Sony Music Legacy Recordings, and it's four CDs of unreleased Frank Sinatra radio performances from 1935 to 1955. So it's 100 tracks for 100 years, and 91 of these recordings have never been released commercially, and many of them are extremely rare. I was delighted to find them through the past several years, and I think anyone who loves Frank Sinatra is really going to enjoy listening to this package. There's a lot of great stuff that we haven't heard or have not heard in decent sound on this collection. So you can look for this in November. Oh, that's very exciting. November of this year? Yes, second week in November. All right. What does Frank Sinatra mean to you? Frank Sinatra has been such an important part of my life because music is such an important part of my life. And forget about the personal relationship that I forged with his family and that has enhanced my life immeasurably. And just look at how his music and his craft have affected me. Frank Sinatra taught me about quality in music, quality in the lyrics, quality in the orchestration and arrangement, and of course, quality in the recording. And as I point out in my book, all of those things had to come together for Frank to be able to stand there and make a great record. So his supervision of his sessions really affected me because those records are ingrained in my soul. They're such a part of my being. They go through my head constantly, day in, day out. And that's pun intended, by the way. <laughs> I absolutely live and breathe this music. but And it's not just Frank's music. I like to tell people that if you know Frank Sinatra's music, you know all music. You can appreciate and understand all music. And it all starts with Frank. So when I listen to a great jazz interpretation of a classic like Body and Soul or All the Things You Are, I can appreciate any deviation from the melody that the composer originally wrote because I know the way it should sound because I'm so familiar with the Sinatra recording and the Sinatra interpretation. So Sinatra's tentacles reach very far and they extend to all sorts of music. Frank really loves classical music and you can hear the strains of classical music in the arrangements of Nelson Riddle and Axel Stordahl and Gordon Jenkins and even Don Costa. And I appreciate that. And a lot of times I will go back and listen to some of their influences to, to kind of explore where they got their background from. So, you know, Nelson loved the impressionist composers such as Delius and Ravel. And I listened to a lot of uh, Ravel and Delius because I love that sound. I love those little Nelsonisms. And, and they come from somewhere. And that's the kind of thing that Frank's music inspires. It inspires you to reach further back and listen to classical music and early blues and rhythm and blues and soul music. And it, it just goes on and on and on. 
So, you know, it's not just that Frank affected me because of his own artistry. It's that he really inspired me to explore this whole peripheral world of music, which, which has just given me incredible, incredible pleasure in my life. It really is my life. What is the best thing about being Charles Granada? The best thing about being Charles Granada is that I have been lucky and fortunate to get to do the work that I love doing and to meet and enjoy the friendships of people who have had a great impact on my life. And some of your listeners might know, because I know that we talk about this sometimes on Nancy's show, I have a life outside of music. I was for 27 years a police officer. So I was very young when I started working in the police field. And I enjoyed that tremendously. And that was a big part of my life and remains a big part of my life. I made many friendships and learned a tremendous amount about life and living and being a good citizen by being a police officer. At the same time, concurrently, I had this entree into music. I began working at Sony Music and had the chance to start writing and then wrote one book, two books, three books. Now I'm working on four other books at the time, at, at the moment. So these two lives concurrently consisted of things that I loved and enjoyed doing. So it never seemed like work to me. And I think very few people can say that about their life, that they really loved the work that they did. And I like to think that not because of me, but because of the work that I chose and the way I approached that work, that my work had meaning somewhere in the scheme of life. So both as a public servant and as someone who is out there trying to keep this music alive and bring people a different perspective about it. So I think the greatest thing about being me is that I've been blessed and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do things that I love with my life. Very open-ended here. For anyone who is listening, what would you say to them? First, I would say that there's a great correlation between music and life, and especially music and the other arts, such as fine art and dance and acting. And if you can find that connection in some way, if you can hear the color in music and see it in a painting, if you can hear the texture in music and see it in someone's rendering, or if you can sense the motion and the ebullience and the joy of music and, and also appreciate it in someone's dancing or acting, then you've really put everything together and I think you appreciate it the most when you can really make those connections because all of these arts that we're talking about are really symbiotic. They feed off of each other and there's a lot of interplay. The other thing that I could say and, and I would suggest to people is treat each other well. If there's one thing I've seen as a police officer, it's that life truly hangs on a fragile thread. And it can all be taken in a nanosecond. And I've seen that happen to people. And I kind of keep that in mind as my overarching philosophy. I try to treat people in a way that is respectful and in a way that is helpful to them. And I know it's difficult because we live in a culture that's very fast-paced and very competitive. 
And I think sometimes we all have to take a breather and sit back and just say, how am I treating people today? Am I treating them in a way that I would want to be treated? And I really think that when you appreciate music and the arts, you can get in touch with that gentler side, that more humanistic side of life. That is vitally important. Don't take any day for granted. Don't take the people in your life for granted. Be kind to each other and share the music. What a beautiful answer. Well, I, you know, I, the way I feel, I mean, I really feel that way. It's like, it's just what it's about. I try to live that. I try. Can't say that I'm always 100% successful, but I try. My last question. Who is Charles Granada? Hmm. Man, you're good. First and foremost, I am a parent and a spouse with a very loving and supportive family who I'm grateful for and who I turn to for support and encouragement. And I think that's vital to anyone's success is having good family and also good friends. I have a wonderful network of friends who are close to me, so close that I consider them to be family and we share a lot of special time together and we help each other when the times are rough and celebrate when the times are good. And I think everyone needs that, family and friends. Music, of course, is vital to my existence. And I see myself as someone who doesn't critique music as much as I try to explain it and bring it to people through my books, through my commentary on the radio in a way that allows them to think of music with a different perspective the next time they listen to it. And that's been one of the most wonderful things for me is having people email me or call me or send me a letter to my publisher and they say, thank you so much for opening up this avenue for me to hear things that I never heard before. And I think that I've been blessed with good ears and a good sense of what musical quality is. And I'm just trying to give back and help people appreciate it even more. Maybe explore it a little deeper than they might have if they didn't read one of my books or they didn't hear Nancy and me talking on the radio about something. So I think one of my jobs and one of my functions as a human being is, is, is bringing music alive for people. And I'm, I'm, again, very, I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to do so. Mr. Granada, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Paul, it's my pleasure. This is a wonderful opportunity, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour.